Welcome to Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We are taking a break from fishing for one day because of a very important story that's developing in Beltrami County regarding chronic wasting disease. It has been detected in Beltrami County. They know about where it's been detected and steps are being taken to try to contain it. And it's also going to mean big changes for Beltrami County hunters come fall. We're going to discuss it all with John Williams, the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, next. This is Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, sponsored by Visit Bemidji. We have John Williams joining us once again. He is the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Um, maybe not the best topic to talk about, but we've, we certainly want to cover it. So thank you for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me on today, Kevin. Well, we are going to talk about CWD. We, uh, I did talk uh, with somebody from the DNR a little earlier on this as we did get our first positive CWD test in Beltrami County. And now uh, we're, we're moving forward with some steps uh, that are going to be taken. So, John, let's just... Uh, Let's just have you recap the whole story on, on what has occurred to this point. Well, I think everybody knows um, the concerns about chronic wasting disease, which is the CWD acronym that we use all the time. Basically, it's a disease that deer can get, and uh, once deer get it, it's a, uh, there's no cure for it. That deer is going to die if it uh, tests positive or if it has chronic wasting disease. And as much as um, there's a concern about chronic wasting disease getting into the wild deer herd, it's a major concern and a major effort for the DNR to uh, begin looking for these uh, places where they may exist. And, of course, many people know that we have had some issues in the southwest, or excuse me, the southeast part of the state where uh, we are testing and finding that wild deer do have it in the, the population down there. And we are monitoring several sites. I think right now we're up to about seven sites altogether in the state where we're concerned about uh, chronic wasting disease. Uh, many of them are just monitoring sites to see if they, uh, if the disease has jumped from like a captive surrogate herd that tested positive into the wild deer population surrounding it. The most recent one, uh, as people have probably heard, is found in Beltrami County and Deer Permit uh, 184. And um, what we found out about the beginning of April was that one of the deer in a particular cervid farm or a deer farm uh, had tested positive. Uh, Board of Animal Health, which manages the cervid deer industry, uh, contacted us, and then we began getting involved with uh, uh, just investigating exactly what all that would mean. Um, further investigation uh, revealed that once the herd was depopulated and tested for the a deer that remained in that deer farm, it was found that 12 additional deer had also contracted the disease and were positive in that particular deer farm, so 13 altogether. Um, so that implies just a number of things. Uh, we have a uh, uh, basically a, a cervid or a chronic wasting disease plan uh, that anytime something like this happens, we begin to investigate what it is and certain steps are taken in place. And we've taken at least the initial steps up to this point. We also found out, oh, and by the way, if anybody wants to see that plan, you can simply go on the DNR website and uh, search for it, and I think you'll be able to find it. If not, people can contact me, and I can send it to them. Okay. At any rate, um, we then began to investigate what was, what was uh, the condition of the fence, how was things uh, arranged within the, the farm, in other words, to estimate what, are the, what is the uh, um, 
possibility that disease uh, could jump to wild deer in the area. We then further learned that some of the diseased deer, or some of the deer that had died had been taken out of the fenced area and placed on some adjacent county land nearby. Now, that was uh, a pretty much a, a real concern to us because no one knows, you know, if the deer were um, positive or not. Um, some testing, I think, later revealed that one of them uh, was. And so that then really uh, presented us with a potential risk that we needed to evaluate. So as the um, uh, evaluations continue, we actually were trying to find the exact site where the deer were, were uh, placed, and it turned out to be county land, uh, just uh, like I say, about a half a mile away, I think, from the original farm. We went out there, looked at it. We did find places where there were matted hair, where deer had decomposed. There were bones scattered over the site, and uh, we kind of tried to map exactly how um, the bones had been found, where they were at. We actually GPSed everything. Uh, for where that was at. Another group uh, was very interested in <clears throat> uh, this particular issue the, called MinPro. It's a University of Minnesota uh, uh, group that works down there basically working on prions. Uh, the MinPro stands for Prion Research and Outreach, I think. But uh, they have a test that they've developed called RT-Quick, and it basically is a test that can be used on uh, tissue, soil, plants, uh, bones, to see if any of the chronic wasting disease prions are present. They then uh, went out there, they collected some of the bones and uh, tested soil and plants and stuff like that. One of the bones turned up uh, to show that the prions were present of chronic wasting disease in it. So we know that at least the probability that some of the deer that had died in the farm um, was probable that they were uh, passed away from chronic wasting disease. That was a big red flag. Um, the fact that the deer had been taken outside of the fence and deposited was the first one. And so we then began to really put some time and effort into evaluating exactly the, the size and the scope and the, you know, what it would take to put some type of an exclosure fence around this area so that wild deer wouldn't be um, exposed to those prions. And that is one of the ways that deer can collect them in, from the soil, from the samples, and uh, things that they may eat. So we wanted to build an exclusionary fence around this. So, Kevin, largely that's, that's kind of the story of where we're at right now in terms of this um, particular situation. We're now in the process of uh, evaluating what it will take to put a fence up. And uh, I guess I could tell you some of the steps we want to take, but I'll stop there to see if you might have any questions about kind of the, where we've been and where we're at now. I think one of the questions I would have is uh, for for people who maybe find deer on their property that, that have died, um, is it legal to move it off your land? Well, the, the the issue in this particular case was that there are there are certain rules at uh, captive deer facilities about what you do with carcasses, and it is illegal to take carcasses outside of that fence and then deposit them someplace else, okay. uh, just simply because of the potential for these trans, disease transmissions. Now, if a person, you know, obviously a hunter that shoots a deer and cleans a deer and you have that uh, that which is left within the field, plus the uh, remaining bones and legs and stuff like that. All of that can be left in the field under normal circumstances. The issue that we have here is we now we have a positive deer farm with deer that had been taken out of it and then placed in a place where deer, wild deer, can access the site, and that's a real concern for us. We do consider this site to be very high risk. Okay, based on what the you've seen and other agencies have seen 
uh, with what what has happened in the southeast. Uh, how quickly could this thing blow up? That's a good question. Chronic racing disease does take some time to present itself. Uh, deer can maybe live with it depending upon, I guess, the health of the deer or the, the impact of the, uh, how, how uh, infected it is for some time, including years. Um, so what our strategy basically is, is uh, first off, we're going to ex- you know, contain this site with a fence, and um, I, I'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, um, if, you know, the, the thing that we're really needing to do, and this starts this fall for this area, is we'll begin collecting deer from hunter-harvested uh, deer. They will be required to uh, bring the deer in for testing. We'll take the glands out of them, send them in for testing. Our main thing is to find out, has this disease actually jumped into a wild deer population? We only know the, the best way to find that out is through uh, hunter-harvested deer because we get a bunch of them there. But we also uh, test deer that are found either sickly or at least exhibiting the symptoms of chronic wasting disease or there may be a roadkill within that particular area or something like that. So we look for it, we try to find it, and then um, if we find it, that starts a whole other sort of uh, steps that we take to begin to contain it. And that is, uh, we have seen that obviously in the southeast. We have seen that even just down the road. Um, our friends in Crow Wing County have been doing that for a few years now. Right, right. The good thing about Crow Wing County is, you know, um, the... We initially had a positive deer farm down there. We did a couple of years of uh, testing. We were within a year of, of wrapping that up. Our, our standard is basically is we, we set a number of samples that we want to have that is statistically uh, significant for finding if the disease is present even to the degree of less, you know, 1% or, or less or something like that. And we, were, um, we do that for three years, and if nothing shows up, we write it off as no probability that the disease has actually impacted the wild deer. The place that we did that most recently at was at St. Cloud area, just south of St. Cloud, where there was a positive farm, three years testing, uh, nothing showed up, and, and uh, so we're not testing there right now. In the case north of Brainerd, um, after the second year of testing in January, there was a deer that was uh, found dead and uh, on the road, I believe, and we tested it, and it turned up to be positive, a wild deer. So that changed things quite a bit. So we wanted to find out, well, is it just the one deer? Is it more than that? So we then initiated another three years of testing in that particular location. Um, We've done two years of those three years, and nothing's showed up. And we've had adequate samples. The hunters have really been very helpful in terms of uh, us uh, helping us to manage this disease. So hopefully this fall, uh, when that area is tested, we come up with, again, nothing. And then we can uh, at least declare by the plan that we won't be testing there anymore, and we don't feel that that uh, particular area is a risk. The Beltrami site will be t- handled identically. We'll have at least three years of, of, of testing the deer, and, you know, our, our rough area of testing is fairly large, you know, if I can just describe it. It goes far north as Washkiss, as far south as Lake George and Walker, uh, as far east as Deer River, and as far west as Zirkle and Bagley, so it's a fairly big area. And uh, we'll set up a number of check stations and probably have some head drop-off boxes as well, uh, just in places where there's not, you know, uh, stores that we could have hunters come in and check things in, make it convenient for people. And uh, we'll begin that this fall. We're in the very process of trying to understand statistically what we need to have for samples. Right now we think it's about 1,800 for that area. 
and we set things up to at least uh, achieve that much and probably more. So that's kind of what fall looks like. That's some of the things that we um, are looking at for, I guess, containment um, or at least monitoring and yeah. surveillance in the Beltrami. Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager John Williams is my guest today. Chronic wasting disease has been detected in Beltrami County. Now the effort is underway to do our best to stop it. Got a lot more to cover with John next. This is Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Hi, this is Dick Beardsley with Dick Beardsley Fishing Guide Service. Are you looking to plan a fishing trip? Look no further as Bemidji, Minnesota is your year-round destination for walleyes, pike, muskie, bass, perch, crappie, panfish, and more. With over 400 fishing lakes within a 25-mile radius of Bemidji, come take a cast of becoming a fishing legend. While you're on your fishing adventure, come take a picture with the historic Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. Discover the first city on the Mississippi... Bemidji, one step further. Welcome back to Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. John Williams, the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, my guest today as we discuss the battle against CWD in Beltrami County. And John, let's talk a little bit about that fence. Uh, that sounds like a major project. It is a major project, Kevin. Um, I said that we GPSed, you know, just about everything we found, and, and we have. And it looks like the the bones and things have been scattered over about 12 acres or something like that. So our intention is to surround this site with a permanent fence that will be in place for at least 20 years. The fence is 10 foot high. Uh, it should be deer proof. It's the idea of excluding deer entirely from it. And, uh, you know, that's that's going to be the ultimate goal. What we found when we went out into the site, it's a it's a gently rolling site with uh, the uplands being largely an aspen cover type with a few pines and birch mixed in. But as it drops off, it gets into several wetlands. And that's been the real issue that we've had to deal with and how we, how we uh, address that. Because obviously, you know, um, to build a fence, you want to make the fence uh, able to stand for a long time. And one of the concerns about a fence is a tree falling on it, compromising the fence. So we're going to have to clear a significant area to build the fence. We're thinking it's at least going to be 120 feet wide, and uh, that's got to be cleared down to where no trees are, are there when we construct the fence. The land has to be leveled where the fence is at, so there's no gaps in the fence by the bottom or something like that. So it's a lot of effort to do that in the summertime. In fact, it became so obvious that this was going to be uh, a project that was um, still going to take a lot of time to get in place and get done that we decided we would shortcut the project and put up a temporary fence as soon as we can. And that process is actually starting today with clearing and uh, getting the materials out there. And, and we'll be working on that in the next month to actually get a, a temporary fence uh, put up. It's much more simpler. It's, a, it's basically a poly net type fence that's rated for deer. And uh, we'll have to clear a much smaller area uh, and monitor it until we can actually put a new fence up. The permanent fence will be basically constructed under uh, frozen conditions to clear the land, and then later in the year, once things unthaw, we can drive post and get the fence anchored. Uh, that'll be taken care of more in in the uh, after the thaw is out in uh, 2022. So, um, temp fence, permanent fence. Uh, what makes it temporary? Is it just uh, not as strong materials, or or what's what's the difference? There? Uh, Couple of things. We don't have to clear as much. You know, this is this fence is only going to be in place for, you know, some something less than a year. Okay. Um, the material itself is 
some sort of poly fence. It's a it's a netting. It looks like it's about a two by two netting, eight foot tall. Um, uh, we'll be able to use less lesser uh, uh, materials like T posts and wooden posts for corners and things like that. Um, it's probably going to be good for the time being. You know, I would say uh, unless something really wanted in there had an intention to do that, it's going to be satisfactory for that. We are going to have to monitor that fence uh, in the meantime for anything that may get in it. But also, even when the 20-year fence is up, the more permanent one, we're still going to have to monitor it for uh, any type of damage or if anything would get in it or something like that. It's just an easier, the temporary fence is just an easier, less intrusive way to get something up now. And uh, that's our main concern. It being a risk, a high-risk site, we want to try to get this um, uh, protected as soon as we can. So that's why we're kind of taking two steps here. I'm assuming the fence is going to take care of two things, preventing deer from moving into the area to get infected and maybe preventing some infected deer from getting out? Well, one of the things that we will do before we completely close it off is to make sure there's no deer in it. Okay. And that's that's key. You know, we don't want any deer in there whatsoever. All right. Well, in yeah. Fact, uh, go ahead. In fact, Kevin, we're, we're quite concerned about anything being in there, including, you know, us. Uh, we are intentionally staying out of the heart of this area and basically working around the perimeter uh, just in case, you know, anything, any of these prions could get on equipment or boots or anything else. It's that, you know, we're taking that kind of caution on this. There's a lot about, you know, how these prions move around to uh, um, just they're unknown enough that we don't want to take any risk about things being in there. Right. I mean, to this point, we've seen no evidence that it affects humans, but there's been also very little research one way or the other on that, I'm guessing. That's true. You know, the Center for Disease Control states very clearly if you have a, a deer that you know is positive through a test or something like that that has chronic wasting disease, you shouldn't eat that deer. But um, as far as uh, people unknowingly eating the deer, we don't know that it can affect people. There's so there's there's really no evidence that, that uh, points to that occurring. And it's been around, at least it's been diagnosed in deer since 1967 out in some of the western areas. So there's no doubt that people have, have probably consumed that positive deer, but there's no in, incidence of um, uh, increased in what the human form of that disease is called, which is Creutzfeldt jacobs disease. Uh, people know it maybe as mad cow disease as well. But uh, doesn't appear to be a, a situation where humans can, can contract it, but... There was a, a test done in, I believe it was Canada, on some macaw mon monkeys, and they were fed high doses of infected meat, and uh, they did develop the disease. You'd have to Google that one to really get the details. I just know that I had heard that, and, and that kind of put a pause on some things, you know, for, for things like that. So um, the good thing, I guess, would be that people who take deer in that area up there um, they will be required to present their deer for testing, and then they will know whether their deer is, is uh, um, tested uh, free of the disease or if it tests positive. And, you know, we, we uh, to this date, I think our total positive deer in, in, in Minnesota is just over 100 or so. So it's not like it's, it's, it's grossly, and I'm, I'm talking even in the south southeast area, it's not like it's grossly just everywhere. Right. Uh, it's rel relatively rare, but it's so... It's so dangerous in terms of the impact that it could have to our deer population. We just don't want to take the chance of it spreading at all. Um, states that have had it uh, and places that have had it have never successfully 
eliminated it uh, once it gets into the wildlife at a certain level. Um, so we're doing our best. We're doing our dead level best, and it has really taken a lot of resources and staffing to uh, to have this program to fight this disease. And and you know the Beltrami site is no is no difference. I can tell you that our local staff who work in that area and Blaine and I in the region and others in St. Paul, uh, we're spending a, a considerable amount of time just to, just with the logistics of of how you do this and to get the materials taken care of, get staff on place to get it worked, it's a big deal. Well, certainly there's a, there's certainly a lot of people that live up in that area, and a lot of people have a lot of land that they like to hunt on and maybe uh, do some things out there. So what happens um, if we stumble across um, a, a, a deer carcass in the woods? Is there, is there some sort of process we should do now because of that? I would say this, if a person has reason to believe they, they have observed a deer that is sick, and, and you know, that could be anything from the deer acting in a stupor, if they see a, a, a deer that is uh, very malnourished, in other words, very thin, very uh, raggedy looking, stuff like that, and you have to be careful this time of year, of course, the does are nursing and everything else, and they look a little thin, you probably see ribs on some of them, but... There's obvious, uh, you know, slowness about the deer. The the symptoms that are there that you would, the thing to do would be call uh, the Bemidji office or the Park Rapids office, or even the region office, and uh, we'll get people out there to try to collect the deer uh, and and have it tested. Person finds a roadkill deer, uh, you know, uh, within the let's say the northern part of 184, it'd be a good idea to let us know again, and we can go we can go test that area as well. So. Um, that's the way that people can can talk to us. Just give us a call. We'll uh, we'll talk into the situation and see if it's a reasonable thing to go out and collect the deer. And I would say too, the things that we need from a deer basically are those glands that are found in the head, the, the glands in the, the medial part of the of the head itself. And we can also test the glands, the lymph node glands in the jaw and, and the right around the parotid area as well. So there are, you know. Uh some farms throughout the state of Minnesota, that deer farms, um, what should they be doing right now? Well, the deer farms are under the, they have statute and rule that tell them how they op- have to operate. They're in close proximity or close contact with the Board of Animal Health, which manages that industry. So basically just follow, follow what they know to follow. Um, right now there's a current ban on moving deer around because once the Beltrami site was found to be positive, they did what was called contact tracing, and basically that is where uh, deer movements to and from those uh, positive deer farms are, are tracked. And uh, through that area, there's an additional, I think, nine farms that uh, are currently um, tested, or at least they're, they're uh, I can't think of the right word to, to say they're quarantined, I guess okay. is what it is, uh, for any deer movement. And uh, right now, until we find out all of the, the, tra- the contact tracing, if they're clear or not, there's, there's uh, been a, um, a rule made that they cannot move deer. Once that's taken care of and once it's found out, you know, we kind of take whatever the next steps are from that. But basically those people that, that have the cervid, um, the deer that are captive, they just simply need to follow the rules and, and work with BAH to uh, uh, make sure that everything's hunky-dory. Okay. Covered a lot of ground. There was a lot of information. I may have missed it. Uh, I know that in uh, in some parts of the state uh, and in other states, they have banned deer feeding because of uh, chronic wasting disease. Is that in effect here? Good call, Kevin. That's a good, great question. 
Yes, in places where uh, around any of those areas where we are doing surveillance or else uh, monitoring or, or management, uh, we have deer feeding bans in place. Um, we haven't exactly determined what type of feeding ban by the area that will be around this uh, positive farm in Beltrami, but you can expect that this fall that will be uh, defined and it will be made known for where um, the uh, feeding ban is in place for, for this coming year and probably for the coming three years, I would say. I would say one other thing, Kevin, in terms of the fence, in terms of the effort to to find out as, as much information and in terms of coordination, we're having excellent work with the county. They've been very hopeful to us in terms of uh, working with us, the actual site where this, uh, the deer carcass of the place are on county-administered land. Uh, we've been in contact with the tribes, that's Red Lake, Leech Lake, and White Earth. Um, they are very concerned about this as well. They're starting their own programs for testing, uh, working with us uh, in that regard. We have been working with uh, the University of Minnesota, the MINPRO group. We've been working with the uh, USDA, you know, uh, Department of Agriculture, working on that one. With them, they also have work that they do in uh, CWD areas. And we're also working with people who are doing research on the chronic wasting disease itself. So we've really got a lot of cooperation, a lot of knowledge going into this thing here. And Right now, um, that's the, the type of information that was put together to have our, our uh, testing in place. We're following that. So I, I think we're doing everything to the, to the highest potential that we know how to do right now. This is Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We are not talking fishing today because of a very important topic in Paul Bunyan Country, and that is chronic wasting disease being detected in Beltrami County and the efforts by the DNR to try to keep it contained. John Williams is the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, and he joins me today. About how far do deer roam? I mean, uh, you know, these deer up there, where where, where are their outer boundaries? Ah, uh, boy, Kevin, you... You know, I don't know if I can adequately address that. Okay. But, um, you know, some places in the state, deer do particularly wander, or at least they travel in the wintertime to yarding areas. I'm more familiar with the area in the far northwest, where I was an area supervisor, and deer would easily travel 50, 60 miles at at times to go to traditional deer yarding places during the wintertime. Um Typically in a place like uh, the area around Bemidji and stuff like that, you would have yarding areas potentially if the winter got very tough. Uh, didn't really see that so much this past winter, but in previous winters, uh, proper habitat for yarding is critical for deer survival. And uh, I don't know exactly how far the deer in this area would typically wander, but I would think 20, 30 miles wouldn't be out of the question at all, depending upon you know where they might be yarding or where they might just be wandering. So, you know, let's say 20 to 30 miles out they go and they, um, they you know, uh, they, you know, contaminate another deer who goes another 20 to 30 and, uh, you know, it doesn't take long. No, that's why we want to catch this as early yeah. as we can, you know, and, and uh, we now have, you know, we know, I guess the, the bottom line is we, we now have another area where we will be monitoring. Uh, if it is into the wild deer, the areas that we have, that area that I described, you know, as far as where we'll be testing, we feel will cover any type of movement in deer um, that would that would have had access to the site. 
So, and you know, look at the size of it. You know, all the way north up to Washkiss, all the way south to Lake George and Walker. That's a lot. That's a lot of miles. Yeah, uh, more than the twenty we talked about. And I can't say that, you know, twenty or thirty miles is just a, a given. It really varies. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, uh, obviously, this is a, quite a challenge for the Northwest region, and uh, um, you know, we were hoping we wouldn't hear that, but uh, it didn't seem likely that we were going to be completely unscathed. And and uh, here we go. Unfortunately, you know, it was uh, it was sad seeing those areas south of us to mm-hmm. uh, have to do this. It really pulled uh, a statewide effort for our staff uh, and others to do the monitoring and do the do the testing and stuff like this. Now it's in our backyard, and uh, the one thing I can say is, if um, the best the best help that we can have in this is that when people are out hunting this year, that if they take a deer and the area that's uh, uh, going to be defined in the, the, the hunting regulations for testing. Please uh, bring your deer in, have it tested, and uh, you do, you know, at least you know the benefit that your deer will be tested and whether it is or isn't positive for chronic wasting disease. That in itself is, is uh, important, I think, for a hunter. It would be for me mm-hmm. in terms of eating the meat. But um, just help us. Bring your deer in. If you have a sickly deer, if you have a... Um, I, I mean, really, a sickly deer, and there's, you know, there's other diseases besides chronic wasting that can make deer sick. But uh, chronic wasting is kind of, as it describes, a deer just wastes away. It, it as if it doesn't eat well, um, and you know, it's thin, acts uh, in stupor, um, loses its fury, people, these type of things. So, if you see something like that, let us know. Okay. Okay. Well, John, uh, taking a look uh, at the uh, northwest region and, you know, looking at our, our situation with no rain or very little, uh, thank goodness we had a great day Sunday. But, I mean, we know that lake levels are lower. We know that there's um, less flowage in the rivers. We know that my garden's having a hard time growing. Um, but what does uh, what does a lack of rainfall do uh, to wildlife other than the the extreme danger, for example, of uh, of the wildfires, you know, affecting their homes? You know, I would think most people that live in sort of a setting where you can expect to have certain kinds of wildlife, even squirrels, uh, running around like this. At my yard here, south and south part of the town here, uh, I got squirrels coming up to my uh, bird feeders. They're even trying to hop up on hummingbird feeders to get a, uh, uh, some of this syrup out of it and stuff you can just tell that they're a little stressed right now um, two things i think that have happened that's significant in terms of uh, what's going on right now with the drought um, at the end of may we had situations where people had to cover their gardens because of cold temperatures and frost and you know trees were in bloom that time and, and you, perhaps you don't think about oak trees being in bloom but that's what they do when they're uh, getting ready to set acorns um, the cold temperature can kill the, the blooms of those things, and, of course, if that happens, the, the tree won't produce mask in that area. I did hear of some trees actually having their leaves burnt on them, and uh, the tree had to re-sprout leaves. So when it gets that bad, you know that some natural foods are going to be hurting this fall. Now, the other thing that's happening is some of the early foods, like the berries and sarsaparilla and, and some of the uh, more common things like bear would eat, um, they're going to be delayed because of this drought or uh, and they won't be as plentiful as they had been in the past. So I think we're looking at a pretty tough year in terms of things, unless we do have rains that kind of come around, get us back to normal. If this continues, I think uh, it's going to be a hard hard sell for, for wildlife to be able to have an easy way uh, going into the fall and into the winter. 
And of course, if they can't build up the, the, the fat reserves that they need, that's really going to be a problem. Bear right now are, are um, uh, we're having quite a bit of issues with bear uh, getting in the bird feeders. You know, the best thing that any landowner can do or any homeowner, make sure there's nothing that uh, a bear would want to eat or smell around there. Even something as a grill that, uh, you know, hasn't been cleaned very well and has a good smell of that uh, steak you've been cooking, that's a, that's a very prime attractive point for a, for a bear. So um, we can expect those things to uh, continue. Uh, I'm hoping this drought will abate and we can get back to a normal maybe food supply. But if it doesn't, I think we're going to see a little bit of concerns on some of our wildlife populations that will be stressed. Well, I, uh, the bear has already taken my suet feeders, and now I have to bring my feeders in every night. He even destroyed a pole. So, yeah, they're there. Yeah, they don't seem to have too much concern for property when they have a, <laughs> uh, when the dinner bell rings. And <laughs> so, yeah, that can be a real problem. Uh, but, you know, it's really, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, we all know uh, uh, some of the things we learned in school back in the day. Uh, we all know water's important, but, boy, uh, when you have a year like this, and we haven't even had it as bad as, you know, what's been going on for close to a decade now out west, uh, just how vital water is to so many things. Yeah, you know, uh, I was out west this past, not this year, but past year, and those large lakes like Lake Powell, Lake Mead, and stuff like that, they are down a tremendous amount. I mean, it's unbelievable when you look at the lake, just how far down it is. But you look what's happened for us in Minnesota. I had one person who said they'd been checking some of the statistics of things, and apparently the, the weather data for Minnesota is pretty good. It goes back like to 1893 or something like that. And for us being as dry as it is right now, this is the driest that June has ever been recorded. At least that's what I was told. And when you hear a statistic like that, that really should, you know, tells you we're in a tough situation. You know, it's not only wildlife that's going to be hurting. You look at, um, you know, people with wells, people with uh, municipal water supplies. Those type of things are going to be impacted for uh, water drawing for, for service for that as well. So um, I'm not sure exactly where all this is hold, uh, heading, but I'm sure if we get some rain that's significant, uh, I measured the amount that we had in our garden here the other day, and it was only three-quarters of an inch. And mm. uh, that helps for a week or two, but it doesn't do anything to do recharging on the ground or runoff. Right, right. Oh, my. Well, anything else going on in the in the wildlife world? Well, you know, we are looking at, at a few things. Uh, turkey season just closed the end of May. Uh, we had a good turkey season. It was down a little bit from last year, maybe about 14%. Um, but last year was a real anomaly. Uh, you know, we were heavy into chronic wasting uh, management at that time. Chronic wasting, COVID management, mm-hmm. excuse me. Um, and, you know, people had time on their hands, I think, because of the, some of the way that we were uh, managing that disease. And uh, we had just a tremendous outpouring of people that increased the hunt, hunting uh, pressure and, and were taking advantage of being outdoors, whether it was hunting or in the parks or fishing, whatever it was. So we're kind of looking at last year as a little bit of an anomaly. If you compare this year to like 2019, we're we're actually up. So I think we have a we've had a good turkey harvest this year. Turkey seems to be one of those um, seasons that more and more people are are uh, participating in. I think you, you see a lot of turkeys as you're driving around. So why wouldn't people have an interest in hunting them? So that's been very good. Everything's set up like it typically is for the fall. With uh, you'll be seeing deer regulations be coming out here pretty soon. Uh, deer archery starts. Uh, September 18th, so does small game season. Um, 
Bear, of course, uh, we typically have the traditional September 1st opener. I expect that if um, our food situation remains as it is with this drought, that bear will be uh, bear harvest will be pretty good because uh, as baiting for bear, that becomes pretty effective when the natural foods just aren't in case. Yeah. And you know, when the natural foods are really plentiful, our bear harvest just drops, you know, greatly. Uh, bear won't come in to bait under those scenarios. So that's what we're, we're kind of looking at. Maybe a change in waterfowl season this year. People have probably heard about an early teal season. We're looking at uh, an early teal season, which some of the other states um, have utilized. Teal are early early uh, migratory species. They leave the state pretty early. So some states have issued a uh, early teal season to kind of catch capture some of the teal that uh, would have not been available during regular opener. So our early teal season is going to be September 4th through the 8th. A uh, person may, may take six teal, either blue wing, green wing, or cinnamon, and um, uh, we'll just see how that uh, how that goes this year. Um, a little another change, I think, when the regular season comes in, we've had a four o'clock closure for the first part of the season. Uh, typically, uh, we're going to go to a sunset, I believe, as the season starts off this year. So some changes coming up for waterfowl hunters as well. Okay. Um, there are probably other things, Kevin, but that's kind of the long and the short of it, I think. Where does turkey hunting now rank as far as uh, uh, license sales go? Do you know? I mean, obviously, deer's king. We know that. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, we're. You know, I don't have the latest statistics on on how many licenses we sell there, but harvest this year was pretty good when you look at the number of harvests that we had. Well, I would say this, though. I, I would say it's got to be the fastest growing hunting in, in Minnesota. It's become so popular over the last five years. It offers something that really hadn't been much available generally uh, um, other than fall and winter hunting. Uh, to be able to hunt in the spring is a real, uh, it's just another item to be out in the woods, and it's a great thing to do. And there's so many other perks when you go turkey hunting in the spring, Um if you like to eat mushrooms, it's a good time to hunt morels. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, if you just like watching wildlife and, mi- and migrating through the state, it's a great time to do that. Or even if you like to just look at wildflowers, the spring ephemerals, it's a great time to do all that. So it's a great time to be in the woods. Um, unfortunately, that's when the ticks come out, and <laughs> you do need to be prepared for those too. So, John Williams is the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. We talked primarily about CWD in Beltrami County and the, and the processes going forward to combat that, but uh, covered a lot of other topics as well. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for all the information today. We really appreciate it. Anytime, Kevin. You bet. By the way, John did get back to me on the numbers for turkey hunting. In 2019, 46,326 licenses were sold. That's general, youth, and archery. In 2020, it was 63,297, and this year, 58,201. So it's definitely moving upward. Um, Success does vary, he said. But in 2020, 22% of hunters harvested a turkey, and pretty similar in 2021, just under 21%, which is over 12,000 turkeys harvested this year. We'll get back to fishing tomorrow. Tracy Poe joins us. He's heading up the second annual Lucan's Village Foods United Way Fishing Tournament. You can register right now at the United Way website. We'll have all the details tomorrow. Also tomorrow, our Lake of the Week. And on Friday, we're going to hear from Nate Blazing on fishing in the Brainerd Lakes area and the Walleye Alliance. 
plus Mandy Erickson as well. There is a lot of fishing talk to come before we hit the weekend. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast on Podcast One or the Pod MN app so you can hear it whenever it's convenient for you and get all that extra bonus content that you don't always get on the radio show. That is it for today. I'm Kev Jackson. We will talk to you tomorrow. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. It's crazy to think that a few weeks ago we were talking about whether or not Tua Tagovailoa should consider retiring after two concussions and worldwide debates on player safety and NFL culpability. Tua has done nothing but go back to work and currently has the Dolphins riding a three-game win streak and one loss behind the division favorite Buffalo Bills. While everyone was yapping about the end of his career, Tua Tagovailoa said he'll decide when it's time. And clearly, he's not ready to hang up the cleats. Hi, this is Chris Howard from the Plugged In with Chris Howard podcast. BetOnline.net is your number one source for betting football and the start of the new basketball season. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news podcasts, and in-depth analysis on every game. BetOnline remains your continued source for all your sports wagering information with live betting up to the minute scores for every the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite games and events, including the MLB playoffs, the start of the NHL season, MMA, boxing, and golf. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts.